to Directionally Correct, a People Analytics podcast with Cole and Scott. Today's guest, nobody. All right, we're live. Yeah. Yeah. Welcome to the Directionally Correct podcast, uh, a People Analytics podcast with Cole uh, Napper and Scott Hines. Hey, everyone. How's hey. it going, Cole? Good. How are you doing, man? It's good to see you again. Things are good. I uh, got a lot of kind of IO intensive stuff going on in work this week. So we got uh, ML model building. We got uh, some focus groups on the way. Uh, doing a little site planning work. Just kind of all over the road. All over the road. Awesome, man. Well, that's really great. Well, I'm just excited that we made it from podcast number one to podcast number two without, you know, <laughs> it all exploding at the end of the message, you know, right? Some people said it was going to be impossible, but we proved them wrong, clearly. We made it mission possible. <laughs> All right. Done with the bad humor. Well, maybe, uh, so one thing that we settled on uh, since the last podcast, we actually have a name. So that's cool. Um, you want to talk about that at all? So what's our name, Scott? Directionally Correct, a people analytics podcast, which it's, it's right there in the uh, show header. Yeah. The intro, right? Well, so, you know, I've got a riff on like, because to me, directionally correct has always been like an incredibly funny statement, <laughs> like when it's used in the people analytics context. But I'm I'm curious, what, what does directionally correct mean to you from your experience? Yeah. So this is not going to be a popular opinion, not with not the IO crowd, but like IO is not an exact science. You know, what we, we think about it as uh you know we're, we're really digging down and like having exact opinions but i mean you look at some of these like r square values that we get and like it's just not or we, we'll treat like a correlation of like 0.1 as if they were like 1.0 and we can pinpoint exact sort of things but uh the best we can really hope for in a lot of circumstances is directionally correct we get it in the right direction you know we're essentially dealing with survey data in a lot of instances and you know people are terrible at providing their own opinion they can't even tell you what they want for dinner tonight much less like how they're doing at work this sort of thing so we're, we're building these models uh and you know these insights around inexact science so we we can we can generate results and oh man that that should be the name scott inexact science of people <laughs> analytics podcast. like we could cancel directionally correct. Yeah, i love that here we'll yeah. just cancel it out um but you know we're, we're building these models and we're building these insights off of inexact work but in aggregate it, it works in aggregate we generally get it right it's in the right direction and that that's what it means to me oh yeah like i, I love that concept of the errors, as long as errors are randomly distributed, they cancel yeah. each other out, right? And so as long as, you know, I think that's like the basis of like the central limit theorem and stuff like that. But, uh, you know, basically my experience with being directionally incorrect is like, is it going up? Is it going down? <laughs> is it staying the same? As long it's like a lot of times it's usually like back of the napkin math, you know, that kind of stuff. And it's like, all right, well, I guess we're going to satisfy us on this solution today because usually it's in the context of, man, it would be really great to have a specific result here. But since we don't have that, at least we know it's directionally correct. <laughs> and so and, I don't know. Yeah, yeah that's and, where I've worked off of it. 
some of those like back of the napkins or like a bar room conversations and analyses are the most impactful that you can have because they're spur of the moment. They tend to be collaborative uh, and that they, they solve an exact problem. Oh, uh, yeah, you're, you're getting into it completely because uh, I have this uh, saying that I've used with my teams and I learned it as an individual contributor. And so now I say it to all the individual individual contributors who work for me, which is and it's a sobering saying it's there is no correlation between the amount of effort you put into an analysis and the impact of that analysis. <laughs> and when I say no, I don't mean there's a small correlation. I mean, there's no correlation. And so back of the napkin, directionally correct math can have a huge impact. And something that you've worked on for six months or a year may have no impact. And and so <laughs> it's like, wow, we better really get this right if we're going to spend a year on a project or something like that. So, so t tell me more about that. I, I find that wildly interesting. So, so are you saying like you can endeavor in this like massive research project and at the end you're essentially running a correlation or you can just get some uh, offhand data and yeah. quickly run a correlation and you have essentially the same impact. Well, let, me give two, let me give you like two quick examples, right? So one example would be of like where it's not having an impact. It's like every one of us can think about a big project that we had that we presented the results and then nothing happened, right? Right. So that oh, would yeah. be my example. And I mean, we've all probably have a laundry list of those type of projects. We wish we didn't, but we do, right? Oh, and yeah. so that's the example of, you know, putting in a ton of effort and having no impact, right? Well, here's an alternative example. I remember I was working with a, an organization that remain unnamed and they were having these turnover problems. And one of the issues was all the new people were quitting but the tenured people were staying longer, right? Where they were ha and I, I remember I just talked about it in a conversation using logic. And I said, well, so like, let's say you've got a 70% chance of leaving if you're within your first year, but you've got a 20% chance of leaving if you have w more than one year of tenure, right? Mm -hmm. Well, here's the problem. Your turnover rate, which is already too high, is going to keep increasing, right? And again, to that directionally correct point, Right, it's going to keep increasing. And the person asked, well, what, how do you know it's going to keep increasing? And I said, just logic. Because every time one of those, one of those 70, yeah, one of those uh, people that have less than one year experience, when they quit, they, they're replaced by another person that has a 70% chance of leaving, right? But guess what? When one of those people that have more than one year of experience quit, they're not replaced by a person with a 20% chance of quitting. They're replaced with a person who has a 70% chance of leaving, right? And so right. it, it's kind of going to turn into an asymptote of you're going to get closer and closer and closer to 70% turnover uh, every every year because the people who have more tenure are going to leave even though it's at a lower clip and the people that are new are going to quit too, right? And so was, and that person was like, and so I didn't have to do any analysis to show that. And that like changed this key executive's whole worldview about turnover being a problem. Right. And so it literally took no analysis. Th those are like very magical moments. And like it's kind of like a rare occurrence because a lot of times you they, they come at you and they say, like, you know, we it's we rare need for you, Scott. <laughs> I'm kidding. It's, oh, it's yes. Rare. Yeah. Uh, yes. I mean, my batting average is very low, clearly. Uh, but uh, it, it, you get these like magical moments where like the stars align and like you can divide divine these sort of insights uh you know using like our backgrounds etc uh how do you make them more possible H how do you increase that batting average 
I mean, man, if I knew the answer, I used to have this saying, I don't say very much anymore, but nobody bats a thousand, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, and it's just a way of saying like, hey, you know, what you what you're really wanting to look for, I guess this is a different way of answering the question. What I'm really looking for is the lowest lift, highest impact solutions at all times, right? Because that's how you control for there being no correlation between your effort and impact is if yeah. you can find something that is likely to have an impact and that you don't have to put that much effort into or, or a, a, a correlation between the amount of effort and impact, right? Um, so if you know it's going to have a huge impact, then you can put a ton of effort, right? And if you know it's going to have a small impact, then you put a little amount of effort. But I always try to kind of keep that ratio in mind. And that's really how I try to increase my batting average. Again, I don't bat a thousand, but I, I think I, I bat a pretty good clip nowadays because I always keep that in mind. Yeah, I think you set yourself up for success, too, in the sense of uh, you're working for a startup. And when you're at a startup, there's like lots of big rocks to conquer, right? There's lots of insight. Yeah, but to be fair, there's a lot of failure all around you. <laughs> like Ever-present uh, danger of destruction. Yeah. The highs are higher and the lows are lower. Let's put it that way, you know? <laughs> Uh, well, I mean, like, there, there's a lot of companies out there that have, like, just a ton of IOs, and they are just kind of drilling down on minutia, right? And that that would drive me nuts. If, like, I was just trying to increase uh, our validity coefficient by, like, 0.02 for, like, say, a selection instrument or something like that, I, I would... I would be hard pressed to stay engaged at that point. Uh, but if you have like these, like we don't have a selection system in in place, what do we do? That yeah. that feels fresh and innovative. Well, it, it, I, I see both arguments. Like what I would say is it, it's kind of like a two by two chart. Like, are you building or are you very narrow or like or broad or narrow, right? Mm-hmm. It's broader narrows on one axis. And on the other axis is like, small impact, big impact, right? And it's possible to be very narrow, but have a big impact, right? Mm-hmm. And so like, like to use the selection example you said a second ago, well, imagine if that, you know, validity coefficient that was increased by 0.2, well, imagine if that affected 200,000 hires. Well, that's, that's gonna be a material impact on the business, right? But um, there's an alternative scenario where you increase that validity coefficient and you hire 12 people. <laughs> well, yeah, then it yeah. really is not that big of an impact. And frankly, it's not even statistical because you need big sample sizes to calculate that kind of co- coefficient anyway. <laughs> but uh, I, I get your point, point take. And the thing is, it's also possible to have a really broad responsibility and make no impact too. <laughs> Right. So, oh, you know. oh, we see it all the time with uh, executives, not here, but like at other places well, all over, really. Like uh, they perhaps are in the wrong position or like the wrong circumstances are set up around them to uh, limit their ability to deliver results. Um, well, yeah, I mean, like or to put it a little bit differently, you create something from scratch. And it's just not very good. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like that happens all the time. And it's why, you know, I, I have this kind of dictum that I live by and I have for my teams, which is do what works and only that. And therefore you have to prove what you're doing is working 
because otherwise, if you have no idea if what you're doing is working, the chances are that you're having no impact are pretty good. Like, I don't like those odds, right? But I don't know. I don't know if, I think I'm pretty, I'm pretty much, in, I'm pretty in the minority in that regard. And this is where like the foundational IO stuff really comes in handy. It's like, we, we know the history in the background to create better products that hopefully, uh, will be successful. And then when you hit this like multiplicative effect, even if it's like just a small gain, it impacts so many people as opposed to like negative effect, which could totally happen too. If you have a poorly designed system of any sort, uh, it's going to ripple through the entire organization, right? Yeah. And, and a lot of unintended consequences. That's actually something oh, I've been thinking yeah. about a lot lately is like, not just the first order effects of what you're trying to do and what you're trying to make an impact, but what are the second order order and third order effects? Like these are actually really hard questions often. And a lot of times people don't even think about it. It's like, yeah, well, we improved this one small thing, but we screwed everything else up. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, oh, or like the analogy is like you squeeze the balloon, you know, you squeeze one area of the balloon to fix the problem there and air shoots out on the other side. Right. It's it's very much that type of problem. Absolutely. Like, so I, I do a bunch of network analytic research. So I, I like to think about things as uh, networks and how they kind of like ripple through. Uh, so, of course, you got this like kind of chain reaction of of uh, effects that kind of like flow through the network. But there's also the uh, impact that sort of what you were alluding to, where we we deal with a bunch of really, really smart people. And if you institute a policy, they figure out ways around it that are still working within the system, but not what you intended, right? Yeah, there, there's a name for that. I'm trying to think of what it is. But I remember hearing this um, example of, you know, a team that had like a sales quota based on the amount, like the poundage of what was shipped. <laughs> Yeah. And what they like some you know clever person on the team figured out is that it would actually they would get more of a sales bonus if they were able to buy bricks really cheaply and just ship them to no one. <laughs> but because bricks are really heavy and relatively cheap, that their bonus would compensate for the cost of the bricks. And so they were literally just like shipping stuff off to meet a quota. Like I again, that might be like an urban legend or something like that, but I always think like, yeah, people are too clever sometimes. Exactly. I've heard a similar tale about uh, uh, like essentially boars in the wild, uh, like pigs, where mm -hmm. they're trying to eradicate them. And like people would get paid based on their ability to bring in pig tails. So they started yeah. essentially going to domesticated pigs and cutting their tails off. It's not not the intended consequence. Oh, it's good arts law. That's what it is. Good if arts the, law. Yeah, it's uh, I'm trying to kind of remember what I think it's like if the or the measure of the objective becomes the objective people, it'll create like perverse incentives. So it's like the, the thing I think about is like standardized <laughs> standardized testing or a proxy for learning. Right. Yeah. And so people start teaching to the standardized test rather than like teaching children to learn. <laughs> you know, and, and so like all of a sudden you have a bunch of kids who score well on tests that don't know how to think you know and so i don't know that's, that's oh yeah an example you, of good arts law i hear these like urban legend stories in hr too where it's like some smart uh people analyst has come back and said like 
uh, I, I don't know, a person is, well, um, this is all made up, 80% more likely to stay if they fill out a five on this box. So they get in some sort of like training situation and the instructor says like, everyone fill out a five on that box so you stay here, <laughs> essentially. It's like, no, that's not how it works. That's not what yeah. is really driving this a little checkbox. I mean, I think I feel like the the academic in me is like correlation is not causation. Correlation is not causation. You know, I uh, just screaming that well, kind of. And speaking of that, I know one of the things that we had thought about talking today was uh, talking about modeling. Right. And and thinking about like, you know, <laughs> the relationship of modeling to making an impact. I don't yeah. know, like from from your perspective, you know, why like why do we even use advanced models, you know? Like what, what's, what's the value there and, and do they, you know, actually make an impact or uh, is it like a, a, a curiosity as to why we do it? Is there a scientific reason? Is there, you know, an analytics yeah. based reason? What, what, what's your perspective on that? Yeah. So the impact kind of circles back to what we were talking about earlier, as far as like, it depends on the situation and uh, essentially the receptiveness of the audience as well. Uh, to use those results, uh, we can only do so much from a people analytics function of deriving stuff. And then we got to, you know, depending on how your organization set up, hand it off to somebody else to implement and uh, measure results later. But wh why do we do it? Well, I think essentially we do it because data, this is like just kind of a, a proven thing. Uh, the science is in data is data driven results are better than human judgment overall. Like we, we, we are full of that's biases. an empirical statement. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. Uh, we're, we're full of biases, etc. And everyone thinks that they're right. I mean, just get on Twitter and look every everyone thinks that they're right. And it can't possibly be true. Uh, and we, we we've run the numbers we know that say like uh uh subjective hiring is worse than objective hiring uh it's kind of a proven uh um truth in the field so we are increasingly surrounded by more and more data and we have increased computing capacity we have increased uh modeling capabilities we have uh, statistical packages all over the place. And we're developing the know-how to not only develop these sophisticated models, but run them in a continuous way to keep them update and fresh such that these insights can be used. Now there's still like a disconnect between the modeling and implementation, which we're still trying to work out as a field in general, in general. Uh, but we're, we're getting there. We're getting there. It's exciting. It's, it's, it's the future of how things are going to be run, whether you like it or not. It's just the way it's going to yeah. be. Well, like the, my, my take on it is always when it, when it comes to like modeling, like why you would ever model, I always start with simplicity and then try to layer on complexity as, as necessary. Yeah. And so like, what, what's like the simplest model in existence because all a model is is like a smaller representation of a bigger reality right mm -hmm. and and so like the simplest model it doesn't matter if you have you know 10 rows in your data or a million rows or a you know a terabytes worth of data it's like an average <laughs> you know an average is just a really small representation of a much larger data set right saying oh 
And then you might have, like, la again, layering on, like, a standard deviation, one above, one below, because that's giving a representation of your data. Mm -hmm. And then you get into kind of, like, the more complex areas of, like, okay, how do two things interrelate? Okay, we've got this correlation coefficient as a model of taking the, you know, vast numbers of data in your data set, whether there's 100 data points or 10,000 data points of, like, what's the relationship between these two? And then you keep layering on and on and on until you get into like, you know, deep neural networks as a model <laughs> for, and, and again, you know, I mean, I think I kind of use like, cause I really don't think there's ever really a use case for using deep learning in HR, but that's another conversation for another day. Uh, but, you know, like what, what is the model and is, you know, I think we talked about this last week, it is the map, the territory, right? Is the model an accurate and sufficient representation of the reality that you're trying to project? And I, lo I love the point that you were saying about, you know, data is kind of the currency that we have now, right? And so there, there's so many more representations of reality out there than there, there were in the past. And because of the computing power where all that data can then be housed into perpetuity, right? So data that you collected last year isn't just gone by the wind, it still exists today and can influence things about today and even next year, right? Insofar as the, the past is a good representation of the future mm -hmm. because that in itself is a model, right? It, it is a model and boy, you made like a lot of solid points there. Uh, it, it's amazing how many models boil down to essentially just a regression of a few variables in hr <laughs> we, we have all these like <laughs> super fancy like if you want to talk about like neural networks that's essentially just a bunch of uh uh logistic regressions back to back producing like but it seems wild and you you can't interpret it either you don't know why it's happening but if you like boil it down there's only a few key variables in a lot of instances that relate to an outcome or at least give you usable results that that's the ultimate that's the ultimate prize uh do i know more now than i did before yeah that that's like the that, that's like the holy grail of measurement in general well and, and i i would even go a step further kind of back to the point about impact do i more know do i know more now and because i know more can I take actions in a different and better way as a consequence? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, there, there's no there's no reason to model or measure something if you're not going to do anything with that data. Uh, I, I, I subscribe to, I think it's Hubbard, uh, 2015, 2019, How to Measure Anything book, where he talks about <clears throat> all sorts of aspects of measurement, like deriving proxy measures, because essentially, all we do in social science is like proxies, be it survey data, et cetera. But those first few cases, assuming you know nothing and the data are randomly distributed or you can select people randomly, those first few cases tell you infinitely more than the, uh, say, hundredth or thousandth case, because you already have a really good idea of a prior there. Uh, yeah. Well, I mean, that's the whole philosophy behind sampling and behind like the concept of diminishing returns, right? Oh yeah, oh yeah.
Yeah, you get into sort of uh, advanced uh, ML sort of uh, uh, practices like lift curves. And you, mm-hmm. you can act, these have like great business applications in the sense that like the first like 20 to 40 percent of the data, you can show that we can capture 80 percent of what we want to capture in these in this data. But if we continue out to like 100 percent of the data, we're only capturing that remainder 20 percent. Do we want to spend the money to go collect that remaining 60 percent or are we comfortable with spending a little bit of money but capturing like 80 percent of what we want? And I think you just proved the whole point of being directionally correct, right? Yes, right? yes. That just to go, that was a great callback. <laughs> good, good stuff there, Scott. But I mean, I think there's even the concept of like putting models into production too, because it's so much more difficult to put a complex model that gets you that extra lift that you were looking for. If you can simplify the model, it's usually a much more robust model over the long term and much more um more simple to put into production have you dealt with like so so you you talked about this like kind of back of the napkin mm-hmm. uh, uh analysis H- have you dealt with like the other end of the spectrum where it's like super complicated model how do you get this implemented or you know vp approval etc cetera, etc cetera? Have, have you yeah. dealt with this I have um, not as much now as I used to because I again mm-hmm. I usually have other people building these type of models. But when when it was myself, I always spent more of my time on the like. It was one of the weird things about getting into a highly technical field like analytics. It forced me to get more into the softer skills of like influence mm-hmm. and communication, right? Because it was never the technical thing that was holding me up. It was always the ability to influence and communicate effectively with simplicity. And so I went, you know, full on into that side of things of like how to learn to talk about data without talking about data. <laughs> you know, it was like, like I don't, I don't know. And and I don't, is that has that been your experience? I mean, I, I think you and I have worked in some slightly different contexts and industries. And what one thing I do find is like, you know, the companies that I that I worked at that were run by engineers, I had to talk in a very different way than the companies I worked at that were run by you know lay people of sorts. And and so you know, I think you you've had a kind of a different context as well. What what has been your experience? So I, I kind of see IOs kind of going down two different paths, perhaps like three different paths. Like one is, say, a communicator, like you talked about. These tend to be folks that go into, say, like OD or, you know, these sort of fields. You have a high research sort of stream, and this may be professors, academics, this sort of stuff. And then like technical folks, which I, I probably like lean more this way, which is, you know, uh, go into modeling, understanding R, Python, uh, this sort of thing. And the the what what you're striving for is to be the complete package, right? <laughs> you need to be able to talk to all three realms uh, and do it effectively at every level. But that, that's hard to do. It comes with a lot of training, a lot of experience. Uh, Etc. Uh, but I- as far as like communicating to uh, different audiences, this is where like all three realms really come in handy. So like I deal with VPs, 
I deal with uh, on, on the other spectrum SDEs who, uh, pardon me, software development engineers who they love nothing better than to sit behind their computer and just, you know, pound away at code. Perfect. They know the technical aspect in and out. They, they know way more than I do. Uh, and, and they're worth their weight in gold. And on the other end, you know, high end executives who they they're obviously super smart, but they're not technically inclined uh, or, or don't have that experience anyway. So you need to be able to describe uh, highly technical things to them in a way that they will understand, but you don't need all those details. Um, and that that's kind of the challenge of IO in my mind, uh, trying to unify these three fields, but also put this in a context where you have a lot of different audiences that need different sort of uh, attentional resources. Yeah. Yeah. My rule of thumb, and again, I, I don't bat a thousand, but I always start with simplicity and then I'll go as deep as somebody wants to go. Mm. Right. If I have somebody who wants to challenge, you know, line by line the code. All right, let's go there. But, uh, <laughs> you know, this this conversation is going to get pretty esoteric pretty quickly. Just warning you, <laughs> you know, like and I like because it's fun, especially if you can find somebody like a, a stakeholder you want to geek out with. But it's also oh, it's, yeah. it's like, where is the line of questioning coming from? But I don't know to kind of pivot just to, for a second here. I mean, you, you've talked about like really technical aspects of the job and then like there's maybe this separate like data translator pathway that people go down how does one you know learn to stay current or and kind of like the holy grail of being able mm. to do all of the above how, how does one stay current on on being able to be technical and to be able to you know be a data translator and to be kind of the the entire package like because like, first of all, in my opinion, there's not a ton of resources out there uh, to be able to do that. But but second of all, you know, like what what is a person like with your background uh, do in that regard? I really hope that this podcast helps with that respect <clears throat> in the sense of being able to meet really interesting people. They're doing really interesting things because like you mentioned, it's it's so hard to stay abreast of io uh when, when you're in a uh program a grad school program you're on top of your game you, you know all the current research uh because that's that's essentially your job to learn but when you get into an organizational setting it, it's so hard to keep up with this and like we can go to psyop and i always find that super energizing come back with a million ideas and like I, maybe i'm able to implement like one or two uh but beyond that you know book recommendations from friends or you know unfortunately like twitter i'm on twitter a lot you know reading about you are on twitter threads. a lot i am it's <laughs> unfortunate i need to get off it i i recently implemented a uh 15 minute screen time uh thing on my iphone that you know it'll like just cut you off like after 15 minutes like that's perfect you know kind of break that unfortunate scrolling cycle that uh that's a good into. idea what what's it, it called uh it's just built into the phone i think it's just called like screen time or something like that but uh, okay yeah I, I limit my tiktok time and my twitter time and i've only been doing it for like two weeks but 
life is improved. Life is improved, definitely. Yeah, I mean, um, we, we can get into a whole derailing yeah. conversation here, but the only social media I'm even on is LinkedIn. I deleted it all like two years ago. And yeah, like that quality of life improvement went way up. Here's the funny thing for me, and I'll, I'll get back to kind of like how do you stay current here in a second. But uh, the the thing that I notice the most now is when I can tell somebody else is like super on social media. <laughs> like it's because like I'm not even talking to a person. I'm like talking to a meme. Like I'm like, <laughs> because, like I can just tell because it like rewires people like how they like interact and think about things. And I find myself to be a lot more fun person when I'm not on there. But, um, you know, kind of going back to the, the question at hand about like staying current, I actually say LinkedIn is my greatest resource nowadays. I actually yeah. told somebody that in a job interview, like probably like six or seven years ago, like they had like a gotcha moment. They, they want to know like, what, what periodicals are you reading to stay current? And they really wanted to like hear like the Wall Street mm-hmm. Journal or something yeah. like that. And I was like, well, mostly I just read stuff off and given at the time I was on Twitter too, but I was very much on people analytics and IO Twitter. And so I was like, mostly like LinkedIn and Twitter. And of course they thought that was the most, like the dumbest answer. I find <laughs> the best stuff on there. Like I, I feel like I am always, and, and given as probably indicated as you can see since we're on video too, but the bookcase behind me, I've got pretty much every IO and uh, people analytics book under the sun. And I really have read them until they get uninteresting. You know, mm-hmm. and then, uh, I mean, in terms of like the academic literature, you know, the great stuff, because I really don't stay in touch with the literature anymore, but the great stuff bubbles up to the top. You know, if it's really good and really impactful, I'm going to hear about it. And so, you know, I would say there's probably, and I don't mean this in a mean way, but there's probably like 10 really good articles a year, you know, like things that are really going to change the future of work or the future of management or the future of IO or the future of people analytics. There's probably 10 really good articles a year. And there's probably 200 really good articles that are just written by somebody, you know, on LinkedIn or Twitter (laughs) that, that can make a difference and I could really learn from. And there's probably, you know, a handful of books that are published every year. And I want to stay on top of those as well. But yeah, Yeah, I love the idea that you said earlier about, you know, interviewing people on the podcast, you know, and just like, I love podcasts in general. I, I don't listen to a whole lot of podcasts about people analytics. I probably should more, but I, I find that just from like a critical thinking standpoint, I get a lot of my critical thinking chops from, from podcasts as well. Yes. Yes. And, uh, it, it introduces you to, it's a long kind of long form format that, you know, you can really discuss ideas. Like we're kind of going deeper here uh in in a way that like social media isn't social media is like quick snippets of information you know perhaps there's a link to a an article etc but it they, they complement each other the social media and these standards say like academic journals in the sense that social media is uh current and up to date uh, perhaps too much so because there's yep. a lot of crap, crap out there but the academic journals I mean, if you've ever been through like the publishing process, like it's a year and a half kind of minimum in a lot of respects. And your research was conducted maybe two years ago, maybe three years ago. That's that's not current anymore. Not not as fast yeah. as we're moving. Well, I know there's a lot of places and given I, I, I don't go to these places, but I hear about them about like where people like pre-publish. I can't remember mm. the names of these websites where so that they can stay current mm. about things and. 
Um, but yeah, that's not really my field. I, I know some folks are more into that space than I am. I, I, I don't know much about that either. And we should really have a guest on to talk about where to find these sort of resources. I think it'd be helpful for uh, practitioners and academics to have this sort of discussion. Yeah, I love that. I, like one of the things I've been thinking about, because I think it's about, and we really should have a guest on about this that knows more about it, but like the whole concept of pre-publication as a part of like the reproducibility crisis and yeah. all that. I would I would love to have someone on to talk about that. That's a, that's a really good idea. Well, kind of speaking of like resources, that are out there in the ether and, um, you know, just coming across it with serendipity. You know, I came across this article and I sent it to you this morning from McKinsey about remote work and, and, and hybrid work and in-person work and in the relationship and kind of the conventional wisdom of like what causes innovation. Yeah. And so like, I think the <laughs> old conventional wisdom was, you know, the in-person serendipity, the Allen curve that you mentioned last week, as being related to, and, and, and you, maybe you give like a quick educational moment on the Allen curve uh, for a second, but like how just meeting people at the water cooler was where most innovation happened in the past and it would be impossible to do that in a remote environment. Um, I don't know, what, what was your thoughts on that McKinsey article? Yeah, so lots of thoughts really. So like I, I delve into innovation quite a bit, I work at AWS and it's like one of the, one of the tenants of the organization to essentially move fast, keep innovating on behalf of the customer. So uh, a large part of my job is trying to understand innovation and uh, how we can produce more of it, produce more of it. And what, what you find if you dig into the innovation literature, at least historically, is that this idea of a lone inventor, you know, you think of like Thomas Edison or Steve Jobs, it just really doesn't exist. Like th these people had massive teams behind them uh, to produce this work. So Thomas Edison had uh, the muckers, which he, Thomas Edison would come with an idea and essentially tell these people like, hey, go do it. Steve Jobs, not much different, but if you look at his network, he met with every single person in, Silicon Valley, and he understood what was coming next, right? And then he can get ahead of that curve and go produce it himself. But what, what I found uh, most interesting from the article was this idea that uh, there's three different phases of innovation, which they don't stitch together, but I stitch them together because I'm a genius and everything like that. But one, they talk about diversity of ideas. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right? Yeah, so they, they, they talk about diversity of ideas. They, they, they put it in like a, a DNI context, like uh, racial and gender, but that's not necessarily the case. It's like diversity of ideas, uh, productivity, this sort of like heads down time. So we can get off on a whole different tangent on this, but you need this uh, uh, diversity of ideas, uh, heads down time to drill down on it, and then uh, proximity to your customers to understand their needs. And these three sort of things allow you to generate fantastic ideas that are useful and scale them out. Um, yeah, I really like that. I, I love because I, I did not put that together and maybe you are a genius. Um, <laughs> yeah, like, I, hardly, I love that. Hardly. Well, because like I think that gets to the first point about like diversity of ideas was kind of that typical I mean, going back to the water cooler, like that serendipity of ideas clashing that may not have clashed before and that leading to kind of a greater result. I like the thought about like, and kind of this ongoing debate about like, are people more productive at home or are they more productive in the office? And 
what the heck does productivity even mean? But guess what? A, a great idea that's not put into practice is just, yeah. you know, kind of kind of useless. And so from an innovation standpoint, you've got to have that productivity workhorse behind things. And then in terms of, you know, the customer centricity, I love it. it this is kind of, I would even call it a reverse innovation of just going to your customer and be like, hey, what do you need? And then let's come up with like a creative way of solving that rather. And I think that Absolutely. was more of kind of like what you were saying about like Steve Jobs, what he was doing is going around and meeting with all like the VC folks and all the other leading tech companies and just figuring out what the customer needs and then building it first, you know, but I think this like can, I mean, the, the, the question I think behind the article really is like, can that happen in a virtual environment? And, and so what's your perspective on that? Can it happen in a virtual environment? So you hear this a lot uh, from folks. They say, I love working from home. I, and no doubt they do. No doubt they do. The, the, the data is in that people want that flexibility, especially like gas prices. They don't want to come in the office, et cetera. Uh, and they've shown that they can be highly productive in the sense of like, I need to write a document. I need to stay on top of this project. I need to do X, Y, and Z. And that is great on an individual level, but you don't have that sort of cross-pollination pollination of ideas that comes from working with other people in the organization. Uh, working from home, that, that's individual person doing their job that's put on their plate, right? But that's not an organization. An organization's mission is to do these kind of bigger things. And that's what makes it all happen. I think that the flexible work arrangements are here to stay because uh, of the war for talent, essentially. But I don't know necessarily know if it's a good thing. Like, I'd be really curious of the quality of ideas that are coming out of organizations now and what the impact of the pandemic is. Yeah, I think I think there's an interesting take on this kind of to that second theme from the article about productivity, mm-hmm. which is how often do you need innovation? And what I mean by that is like, 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 like let's put innovation to the side for a second. Just talk about prioritization. If you read any research on prioritization, it says, hey, you can probably only tackle like one, two, maybe three big things at a time. Yeah. Right over like a quarter or half a year, maybe even a full year, right? And so if you put bring innovation back in, well, you probably only need, if that means you need a maximum of three innovations <laughs> during a particular time frame, And then the rest of that time needs to be spent on execution and productivity, right? Mm-hmm. And so if, if the concept here is like, if you can figure out what environment where people like where the clashing of ideas comes together the most to create create the innovative idea but you probably only need that in a rare circumstance right and then you need more time to just create that throughput mechanism that's going to make the the innovation come to a reality and so i think that's where like okay maybe we do need that in-person off-site or water cooler type moment to make the innovations actually happen or the ideas for the innovation. And then we maybe you need that hybrid or even fully remote environment to just churn through some stuff to get that innovation to become a reality. 
Yeah, I I, I agree. You you definitely need so, so you're kind of hitting on uh both that cross team collaboration when you come into the office or within team collaboration, however you want to define it. And also this sort of like heads down time to actually drill down into a uh, a product or uh, whatever you're trying to do. Yeah, whatever, on. whatever the idea is. Yeah, you know? exactly. Uh, I, I think from home, it, it really comes with a coordination tax of when you, when you schedule a meeting, it's it kind of defaults to like 30 minute meetings, right? And if you have a 30 minute meeting, it's going to fill 30 minutes, whether you need it for three minutes or uh, uh, 30 full minutes, right? Sure. It's going to fill that time. And that means that, you know, you have certain parts of your day blocked off and like uh, uh, right after a meeting or right before a meeting, that means you're not productive at that time either. Um, and we, we also saw that during the pandemic, people were more productive because they're working earlier hours and later hours because there's no real start and stop time when you're when, you know, walking from your bed to your computer, right? Uh, it, it's a tricky situation because people really like working from home. People really like it. Yeah. I mean, there's there's probably a, like a whole qualitative layer to overlay on this from like, how do I feel about the innovation too? Yeah. Or how do I feel about the context that leads me to be engaged, which would lead me to be productive or be customer centric or be have that diversity mm -hmm. of ideas or whatever. Um, but I don't, I don't think it's really tackled by that article. Not really tackled by the article. Uh, once again, I'd be like really interested in the quality of ideas uh, that are coming out, quality of patents that are being filed uh, yeah. with the uh, U.S. Patent Office. Uh, but I think it's a really scary time for organizations too, because it's it, it'd be super easy to be disrupted if you get complacent or you don't have really good quality ideas. I mean, just ask uh, I don't know cab drivers about uber i mean that'll never work right people don't want to hop in the back of a car uh with a stranger like oh yes they do oh yes they do um same thing with a bunch of other industries right uh amazon uh they, they essentially took out a bunch of book retailers or you know mom and pop shops same with walmart uh it, it's it's you, you got to stay on top of your game to stay alive and yeah, that's that whole concept of that's very common in the tech industry of like creative disruption or yeah. creative destruction, you know, I, and I think that's that's a key part of like the whole business cycle. But uh, you, you touched on one thing and it made me think of this, the second article that I sent you before before the call today or the, before the podcast. We, we for, for the for the audience here, we we actually are on like a video call uh, with each other, which I guess shows the benefits of a virtual working environment that we could even do this podcast because you, yeah. you live on the West Coast and I live in the central time zone and you know, that, that's, a, that's a cool thing that it even enables this to occur. But when I think about this article, it was the second one is an HBR article about are people analytics dehumanizing employees? And I was like, tell me more. Uh, <laughs> when I saw the title, I was like, they, they really probably A-B tested this title because it, it really kind of kind of got me hooked in. I don't know. Did you have a chance to read that article? And uh, I don't know, what what's the high level uh, maybe you know, cliff notes of what it's about and then what's your take on it? Yeah, I, I think that the overall thesis of this article is uh, we have a bunch of passive data around us as HR professionals. And 
you know, it, 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 the more data you have around you, the more the easier it is for people to just kind of think about you in those terms of the data and dehumanize you in that sense. And I, I think that the real risk, I mean, of course, we can create, the, create these great models, which we alluded to earlier from all this great passive data. But it also sets up the circumstances where HR can unfortunately fall into being the police of the organizations like, oh, well, you're you send in emails, too few emails this month, or you didn't badge into the office. Uh, Which brings about Goodhart's law again from earlier, right? Because you're going to start incentivizing a bunch of really weird behaviors to get oh, people yeah. to kind of work around the system. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And we're the goal of the data ought to be to like augment performance and, and show people like how we can use these insights to or people analytics, you yeah. use these insights to make you better and hopefully take something off the plate that you don't want to do at the same time, like automate uh, some sort of processes. Um, I, I know that uh, your organization uh, is doing some of this work as well. Um, how, how yeah, do you see it fitting in? Well, I, I see it fitting in in the sense that I, I feel like there were some faulty assumptions made by the article because basically the article is like, uh, you know, they're going to treat people as data points rather than people, right? And that they're going to, you know, do this ruthlessly to focus on profit. <laughs> and I was like, have you guys ever met a people analytics leader? Because most people analytics leaders I know take a very humanist first approach to this yeah. profession and are incredibly creeped out by any kind of ethical or privacy based, you know, qualms that may come up because of, of these type of things. But the article makes like three points uh, that, <clears throat> that I think are all straw mans. Like one of the, one of the suggestions it makes make, make it clear that people analytics is not a step towards automation. And I was like, Oh, no. they're framing they're framing this that like automation is fundamentally just a bad thing. Everyone I know thinks that automation is a great thing because usually what we're doing to automate is getting rid of tasks that no one wants to do. Totally, <laughs> right? totally. It's a manual task that no one should have to do, and therefore we're improving the human experience by making sure that no human has to do it. And 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 so I guess maybe there's companies out there that they're using automation to just like get rid of people's jobs and stuff like that. But that's not people analytics generally from what I can tell. The second point is about realize that people analytics is more, more than efficiency and show it. And I was like, I don't know any people analytics teams that aren't focusing a lot on like things like engagement and, you know, improving the quality of experience, improving the quality of managers, improving the quality of hires. There's so much more out there about people analytics and just efficiency. And frankly, I think that people analytics should probably be focusing on efficiency more, not less, because I don't think that many teams are actually focusing on efficiency. And then the last, oh, sorry. Yeah. You have a, a thought there? No, sorry. Sorry to interrupt your, your flow there, but I, it, may, it makes you wonder if like people analytics functions should even sit in HR because you do get, do get lumped in with this sort of, uh, oh, you're only about comp, or you tell me about my benefits, et cetera. Or, you well, know, see, you're, I you're take gonna... a completely different realm, because Ooh. if people analytics isn't in HR, and it's in some kind of enterprise function, it probably is going to be focused on just 
automating people's jobs and solely on efficiency and solely on bottom line characteristics and not on kind of the employee advocacy doing things that you know make sure from that humanist perspective that i was talking about earlier which kind of gets to that third point from the article which is avoid labeling people as data and i was like who's doing this <laughs> like it like there, there's two sides to this like one side of it there's a privacy side to data which means that we absolutely absolutely should obfuscate who people are oftentimes just from a, a very good privacy and ethical sense. But in the sense of like data is about people, not data. I was like, everything that we do, like that's why like people have asked me before, like why don't you just go into like traditional data science instead of people analytics? And it's because I like the fact that we're doing analysis on human beings and it's not just data. Data science really is just data. Like it's just data about data about data about data. I want to do data that's going to do things that improve people's lives and make an impact on the business. And that's why people analytics is cooler and better in my opinion. And so they're like, avoid labeling people as data. Like who are these companies that you've been talking to? Well, I mean, like, maybe there's like a difference of opinion here, but like w when I get a bunch of data, a, like quite literally everyone is a label. They are like an employee ID and not even look at their name by any means. But then I, bucket them into you know you're, you're classified as a uh, flight risk or you're classified as high engaged or you're you're classified x y and z uh because they do have common outcomes you know if you do the science right they, they do have common outcomes if you're directionally correct i'll put it that way uh, <laughs> nice <laughs> uh they they do have uh, these sort of like common outcomes on the back end and then because of that, you can pull different levers to improve their lives. So I think that there is some sort of like bucketing or depersonalization in the aggregate. Yeah, it's it's depersonalized to personalize. Like if you really looked at how you described it, your goal was personalization. And therefore totally. to, to ethically get to personalization, you actually had to depersonalize first. And again, this is just somewhat of a esoteric concept when you're going to like the technocratic side of like how to do people analytics, but you're not like making people data just to dehumanize them. You're making people data so that you can do adequate analysis True. so that analysis can then improve the human condition, which is fundamentally treating people as people rather than people as data. You know, we should continue this conversation uh, in the coming weeks because I'm seeing this broader trend of personalization, not only in from, from, from everything from like the recruiting process all the way through the uh, 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 employee evaluations, et cetera. So, yeah. I mean, I, I think this is, is a topic. Yeah. Broad topic. Yeah. We can, we can go ham on this. Awesome. Well, maybe maybe this is a good stopping point. So for those of you who joined us, uh, this is Directionally Correct, a People Analytics podcast with Cole Knapper and Scott Hines. And thanks for joining us today. Man, something went down the throat wrong. <laughs>